Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Keith Law from The Athletic, draft scout and extraordinaire, prospect extraordinaire, joining us here on the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin, James Fox, also along with us. Keith, really appreciate you taking the time. This is some unprecedented times, to be to be honest with you. We weren't expecting to have this conversation in, in this type of light, but here we are dealing with this pandemic and course it influences uh, major league baseball and it influences the chicago white Sox, and it impacts what you do for a living so i wanted to touch base with you on some specific white Sox prospects and where they are in the organization of course but first i want to kick things off with your kind of take on everything that's going on uh, around the world of sports and how it influences you your job in baseball you know for the the athletic mlb you just released an article, uh, your top 30 prospects for the 2020 MLB draft. But of course, we don't know how this is going to play out here. So could you just elaborate on how, Keith, this impacts what you do? I dramatically changes my job. And because so much of what I do is an attempt to mirror what scouts do, um, what scouts do is sort of at a, at a larger level. I try to do, it was sort of when I'm talking to my friends who are scouts or scouting directors, you know, I'm just skimming off the top, right? They tell me who all the good players are. And then I just focus on the elite guys to try to go see myself. I was uh, on a podcast earlier today, commented on how just how strange it was to be home in the middle of March with no plan to go anywhere. At this point last year, I was between my Florida and Arizona trips. And my original plan for March was to head out to Arizona probably Wednesday of this week because there were some particularly good matchups, good things for me to see over the next you know, seven to 10 days out in Arizona. So it's just very, yeah, it's very strange. And I'm going to have to do a lot of things differently this year. Let's even assuming that we get baseball back, let's say by June 1st, the draft is going to be totally different. Obviously we could talk about that. I just wrote about that. But even scouting them, Minor league seasons can be completely different, and I and I genuinely don't know what any of that's going to mean. Is the does the Arizona Fall League suddenly become ten times as important as it was before? Does does Major League Baseball try to do more of a fall league, or do more players go to Puerto Rico in the winter to go play down there? Some of the other winter leagues in Latin America, everyone's going to want to play, and everyone's going to want to go scout players as long as they're playing. And I feel like we are. Uh, we're in a very unusual time where we we can keep talking about what we think might happen or should happen, but none of us really has a very good idea of what will happen because we have no precedent for this at all. All right, Keith James here. So it's it's pretty telling how good Louis Robert might be that you actually you know put him number six overall on your list. Still, can you just tell our listeners about your adventures trying to see Louis Robert play <laughs> and and why you still you know felt compelled to rank him so highly in spite of you know, those, those journeys. So I have never, so for, for listeners who don't know, I, I have never seen Luis Robert get a hit in a game. Um, that is over two full seasons in 2018. Uh, obviously he, he had a, a real injury that affected him the entire season, but there were four different points where I attempted to see him and he didn't play. So I did not see him at all in 2018. Uh, it, it that included, his team coming to Wilmington where I live and I show up at the ballpark and suddenly he's out of the lineup. And it turned out he was gone for a few weeks after that because he had re-aggravated the injury. Uh, 
the Futures game. He was supposed to be at the Futures game. He was in the Arizona Fall League. He missed one week out of the Arizona Fall League that year. It was the exact week that I was in Arizona. So finally, the following spring, I get to see him, and the joke changes from this guy doesn't exist to he can't get a hit when I'm there. I saw him, I think, three separate games last year. He is 0 for 14 with a couple of walks with me in the ballpark. I am momentarily blanking on whether that was three or four games. I also had, had saw his team play a couple of times when he didn't play. He had days off or, or some minor injury, although he was basically healthy the whole season. So if I were simply going off my own looks, I'd say this guy's a physical dream and can't hit a lick. Obviously, that's not true, right? We can all see the stat line. The guy's got clearly got some some very evident ability. But when that happens, and it's not it's not the first time I've just never seen a player good who was good. Uh, I lean on people I trust. I talk to lots of sources, scouts, scouting directors, executives, uh, including people with the White Sox, but obviously not limited to them. I want to get as diverse a set of opinions as I can on a player and and asked, you know, okay, what do you got? Hey, here's a guy. I, I ask about lots of players, but I'm all the more inclined to ask about a player where I think I might be out of step with the rest of the industry. If I think my opinion's different or I simply haven't seen what other people have seen, I haven't seen a player at all. Like those are the guys I tend to focus on. If I know that most people, I go evaluate a player and I think he's X, Y, Z. And most scouts I talk to are indicating, yeah, he's that's about right. Okay. I don't need to ask a lot more questions. Let me focus on where there are differences. And in the case of Robert, there are some differences of opinion. I know plenty of scouts who, I know at least one scout who said that's the best prospect in baseball. I talked to a couple others who said he's too high. I think he's really going to have problems hitting uh, making contact, even though he can obviously do a lot of other things. I, I generally say, uh, always bet on the athletes. He's a tremendous athlete. And he is, like, like I said, the body is great. The speed is there. The, the bat speed is there. Yeah, I have some issues about with some concerns about contact going forward. But he does so many other things well. And he's so athletic. I think he's going to be able to make enough of an adjustment to to eventually become a star. Keith, I want to stay on the topic of Luis Robert real quick because I got a chance to see him across three days prior to the cancellation of spring training. So I was actually there when they, you know, put a put a stop to everything in uh, mm-hmm. Glendale. So I saw Robert in person playing live for the second time, and I noticed in his approach, ultra aggressive, early in the count swings, and I saw him strike out in two at bats. He saw three pitches and one and then saw four pitches in the other. And you talked about gathering all of the information from outside sources as well as your own by being there in person. With that being said, specifically, now I agree with you. I Just everything outside of his approach right now, I'm, I'm, I'm buying into. But it seems like he's, because of how aggressive he is, there is room for exposure. What do you think about that? So there's a little bit of uh, retrofitting an idea to to the facts that we have in front of us. But having seen him across a couple of levels, I saw him in high A and then I saw him at the Futures game and I saw him in AAA last year. Did not see him in double A where he was obviously outstanding. Um, what you saw definitely fits with what I saw. But I think part of his process, because he was hurt and barely played in 2018, the White Sox decided to be a little bit conservative with his starting assignment, sent him back to Winston-Salem to start 2019. He was just too too physically talented for that level. And so he could make some questionable swing decisions 
and get away with it often enough that he never really had to change his approach. And I think that's probably true in double A, but even though I didn't see him directly there, he was going to get away with some stuff at those levels because he was just better than the pitcher. Most of the pitchers he would face at those levels. Yes, I saw him have an offer in Wilmington. Wilmington ha- actually had a great pitching staff last last year. It was mostly first round picks uh, throughout their rotation. But otherwise, I think until he got to AAA, he wasn't really really all that challenged. Now I think you saw some in AAA. Obviously, it's the happy fun ball they use there. So uh, you know every every ball put into play was going farther. But there was a little bit of hey, this approach, this the way his hands work, he's going to get around a lot of stuff inside. You can come with velocity in on his hands. He's going to struggle with that because the swing gets long. That was probably the first time that that became an issue for him. And so he's going, I, I think you're right. I think he's going to have to be a little more selective early in the count because whether it's a triple A or in the majors, and I, we all assume he's going to start in the majors when we play. Pitchers are just going to try to pound him in on his hands with velocity and then maybe go soft away just to go back and put to go in and out against him. And if he doesn't make that adjustment, that's all he's going to see. And if he's just chasing early or just swing, I shouldn't even say chasing, just swinging early in the count and it's not, and he's not making contact, they're just going to keep doing it, right? Baseball is very simple in that regard. If they know you can't hit something, they're going to throw it to you a lot. And I have a feeling that's what the early part of Robert's career may be. Maybe he has, maybe he comes up, he hits well for the first couple of weeks, and then this this adjustment period happens. That's going to be the biggest thing for him because it's not like his swing is going to get less long. It's not like he's going to have better coverage on the inner third, but he can change his approach. He can change the decisions that he makes so that, and maybe he can work to foul off some of those pitches if they're in the zone, but he's got to lay off some of those pitches if they're not in the zone. And that's the adjustment I think he has to make that separates him from being a very good big leaguer who makes some all-star teams to a guy who's a top 10 player in the American League. I think that's a I think that's a very realistic and fair assessment of a guy that we can't help but just be in awe of. You know, he's must-watch TV whenever he's in the box. So we expect him to make an impact at the big league level. Of course, it takes time for players to translate and, and adjust to, to that level as well. But I want to shift gears to another player that we have high expectations for who already had a taste of big league action prior to his injury, and that's right-handed pitcher Michael Kopech. What do you believe is his ceiling, and how would you utilize him this year if you're the White Sox? I know there's some variables in play now, and we don't know when it's going to start, but with his case specifically, what do you think about Kopech? I thought before the injury he had the ceiling of a number one starter. I probably still think that. I would like to see him on a mound, and I don't mean see him personally. I'd like for us to see him on a mound in game action and make sure everything is intact. From what I've heard from the White Sox, it is, and if he's out there again, 96 to 100 with a slider that will show you plus and feel for a change up. I think all he needs to do, I mean, this kid just, he just needs to pitch. He needs the, and he, I think he's also very bright, which helps. I think the more that he pitches, the better he's going to get. He's just going to continue to make progress with experience, with more. I think he's already started to learn he can't live by velocity alone. Very few guys can. And the more that he pitches and the more that he's forced by the team or simply by circumstance to throw his off-speed stuff, the better he's going to be. The problem is what I think you just hinted at, which is that he can't go out and throw 200 innings this year. It's his first year back from Tommy John. And while I don't think anybody knows the exact formula for how much a guy should pitch in his first year back, I don't think anyone really knows the formula of how much any guy should pitch ever. 
I think we're largely winging it. I do think you have to be somewhat cautious and probably just let him and his body tell the White Sox how much he can pitch. I'm figuring he probably throws about 100 innings or so over the course of the year. Maybe he starts out, again, this all depends, actually it would be 100 innings over a full season. So compress that to the to the abbreviated season. Maybe he starts out making some you know, highly constrained starts in AAA and then comes up, and depending on what's going on with the White Sox and if they're contending, maybe he just comes up and works out of the bullpen two innings at a time twice a week or something. He'd be a devastating weapon for the team if they're contending. And at the same time, you're sort of managing his workload just to make sure you're not asking a guy who's at that point less than two years off of Tommy John surgery to do too much. My hope then is that by 2021, you can sort of take the shackles off and then he can just go work as a regular starter and get back to that process of adjustment and improvement. And just, I'm very confident that Kopech has what it takes physically and mentally to make those improvements and to get to be at least an above average starter but with the potential ceiling of a number one. So Keith, Andrew Vaughn had a pretty good showing in big league spring training with the White Sox. And he is, you know, still a five foot 11, maybe with a right, right profile at first base. He's still in the top 30 of your list though. So why do you like him so much and how quickly could, I guess, could he have moved to the majors in your opinion? I know stuff's obviously changed Mm -hmm. now. I think, first of all, I think he's got to start the year in no worse than high A selfishly i hope he starts in high a because then he'd come through wilmington probably i think i think he's going to birmingham okay uh, yeah that's what i figured you know but that was what i was going to the second half of my sentence was I'm sorry he's probably ready for double a no don't be sorry i i yeah. am agreeing with you like i think that probably makes a lot of sense he's really advanced he's just really really advanced as a hitter and i think his swing is going to produce some power i don't think it's going to produce huge power i was asked on a podcast another white Sox related podcast actually earlier today the one from the athletic uh to compare him to Spencer Torkelson, who's probably going to be the first or second pick in the draft this year. Torkelson is more of the big power, but strikes out some, doesn't have the quite the eye of a Vaughn. Vaughn has an amazing eye at the plate. The only concern I have with him in that regard is just, okay, that's great that you can constantly get ahead in the count, draw a bunch of walks. You got to make sure you keep capitalizing on that too. Every 2-0, you should be hunting for a pitch you can drive. I do think he has the swing to hit 25 home runs. Um, you do that with very high on base percentages and perfectly adequate defense at first base, you're probably a star. You may not be recognized as a star, right? But you're producing as a star if you're a 390, 400 on base guy. And I do think that's within reach for him. That's why I thought he was the second best player in the draft class. Uh, the only guy who had higher was a switch hitting catcher who also had patience and power. So it was kind of like, that seems like a reasonable ranking at that point. But the fact that Vaughn is 5'11", the fact that he's right, right? It doesn't really bother me because the things that he's supposed to do as a first baseman, he does really well. And I don't think you have to be, he's not five, six, right? He's that's there. There are absolutely, there, there is absolutely some threshold where it's, you know what? You must be as tall as this sign to play first base in the majors, right? He, he's fine. He clears that. And he does everything else that you'd want to do. The one thing I'd be watching for again, I think in pro ball last year, he was kind of just content to get on base. That's good. But step two then is, what he did in college, get ahead in the count, look for a pitch to drive. You won't always get it, but hopefully you get it often enough that you can put 20-plus balls in the seats and another 30-odd doubles. Keith, I want to kind of shift gears here because you mentioned the draft, and I can't help myself, but I need to get your take. And, of course, you just put out your, your top 30 list of draft prospects for 2020, but the White Sox coming into this year's draft, 
are going to be picking 11th. Now, lately, with Mike Shirley and Nick Hostetler, you know, really running things in the front office, a lot of their, I guess, their approach to the draft lately, it's changed since well, what we've come to be used to uh, as White Sox fans. They're looking at higher round prep players, guys out of high school. Is there anybody around pick 11 that you believe the White Sox can can go after out of high school, or is there anybody in the college scene that you believe is a good fit for the White Sox? This is a very college-heavy draft, and I think most of Hot Stetler's first-round picks were were college guys. They It seems like they'd shown the willingness to go target some high school guys with subsequent picks and pay them over slot, which I actually think is a great approach, especially in this year's draft, where one— it was already a very strong college draft and not a great high school pitching draft. And two, we had about a month of amateur baseball and that might be it, right? So we're working with just less information, less data. We were, I say we, it, I don't get to pick any players, right? I just have to write about them. But if you're the White Sox, right, you're picking 11, you didn't get that many looks at players. So you probably, I'm sure they have lots of data. I'm sure they're happy. They, they sort of know what they're what they want to do, but still you didn't get all the information you typically want to get when you're going to hand some kid $3 million. To me, that's going to, my prediction is that that's going to push more teams towards college. Um, where they pick is still really good this year. If you look at my ranking, I mean, I had guys like Zach Veen, who I think has got the best swing I've seen in the draft video or live. He, I got him at the back of the top 10. I don't have any high school pitchers in the top 10, but there are, Four high school pitchers on my top 30 who are all pretty good. Um, and there, are, there is a lot of college pitching, a ton of college pitching. So I think the safest thing to say would be, hey, the White Sox picking 11th, they could get the fifth best college pitcher in this draft and he's going to be really good. And that guy's probably available at pick 11. Like to me, that's totally reasonable and would be a really good outcome and could potentially leave them in a spot to go over slot with wherever their next pick should be. Um if they wanted to go for the high school to the high school ranks, there's some pretty good high school position players who probably start to come off the board around seven, eight, nine. So the second or third best of those guys, however you rank them, is probably available there. It could be like somebody like a Pete Crow Armstrong, who's a very speedy outfielder from the same high school that produced Lucas Giolito, actually. He's somebody who I expect to go somewhere in that eleven to twenty range and apparently was off to a great start this spring. People were kind of flocking in to see him, but they're They've already canceled the rest of their season. So that's, that is somebody who I could see being a pick there or candidate there if they don't want to go to the college pitching route. Keith, in regards to uh, Nick Madrigal, can you explain your reservations about his profile and then also why being a big leaguer is just much different than being a big league regular? I think Madrigal has a lower floor and a lower ceiling than maybe a lot of White Sox fans would, would like to think that he does. He is about 5'6", 155, maybe 160. And as you would expect from someone that size, it's for no power at all. And it is very hard to hit for even just a high average in the major leagues right now when you have no power. There, in the last 10 years, only one big leaguer has hit 320 with an isolated power, which for listeners who don't know, that's just slugging percentage minus batting average, uh, with an isolated power under 100. That was D. Gordon, of course, is an 80 runner, and by the way, I think that's the season after which he tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. Whether those two things are connected, I will leave to the listeners to decide for themselves. Nick Madrigal is a very solid player, but he's not an 80 runner. And again, he has no power. And so it's going to be hard for him to hit for a high enough average to get to be 
a consistent big league regular, let alone an above average one. It's very hard to make a path for him to be a consistent four plus war player when it's all batting average. And the, the strikeout rate is exceptional. It is admirable that anyone in this era can strike out that infrequently. I am genuinely impressed by that. However, the fact that he makes all that contact doesn't mean as much if the contact isn't high enough quality if he's not hitting the ball hard enough on a line enough to the fence or over the fence enough. I also have my doubts about whether he's going to continue to even draw walks at the same rate because pitchers are just going to challenge him and say, so what? You're not, you don't hit the ball hard enough for me to try to pitch away from the strike zone against you. So I think Nick Madrigal plays in the big leagues a long time. He's a very heady player who coaches seem to love, who puts the ball in play a lot and can play a more than a competent second base, probably an above average second base. That gets you to play in the big leagues for a while, probably. And managers and coaches love guys who never strike out. That's That was true 15 years ago. I think it's even more true now because everybody strikes out so much. I'm always intrigued by guys who don't strike out. You just have to do something else, I think. And I think for in Madrigal's case, it really limits the ceiling because it's very hard to see him being an above average regular. And his floor is more like a guy at the end of a bench as opposed to a guy who you know, definitely plays every day if he's hitting 280, 290 without a lot of on-base ability and with no power, that probably doesn't make you an average regular at second base. Puts you on a, again, makes you a big leaguer for a long time, but probably puts you in a reserve role rather than as a starter. So the next guy I wanted to ask about, he had kind of a big year uh, last year after being a fifth-round pick after pitching at Indiana, which is Jonathan Stever. Do you see him as a starter long-term, or do you think the future is likely in relief? I absolutely think he's a starter long-term. I think he's sort of not so much a sleeper. That would be unfair to say, but sort of the unheralded prospect in the system. You guys are obviously White Sox diehards. You probably know him. But I think even yeah. the, the average fan who considers himself someone who follows prospects probably doesn't know a lot about him. Um, he's picked up quite a bit of velocity since he signed. The White Sox have a pretty good track record of developing pitchers. I'm hardly surprised by this. His curveball, according to scouts, even from other teams, is plus. It's a four-pitch mix. He never walks anybody. Like, I think at worst, he's a back-end starter. At, I mean, that guy's probably a fifth starter at some point this season if they need him. But what I find really interesting is that you know, the fastball's been bumping the mid-90s now. I'm told it has good secondary characteristics, and he's got a swing and miss pitch in the breaking ball. That's, with that kind of control, kind of sounds more like a mid-rotation guy. And you know, the White Sox, I mean, everyone needs pitching depth, right? You always need more pitching. Now, I don't know exactly what the White Sox will need in July or August, but I think Stever's probably pretty close to being that, being ready for a call-up to be an extra starter in the big leagues. And by the way, if they don't need him and they just want to call him up in September for some relief innings, great. That's the best case scenario. If, they, if you don't need him, you're probably on your way to the playoffs at that point. You just call him up to give him a taste so he can be in the rotation next year. Really good stuff there, Keith. A few more for you. Really appreciate the time. We don't want to keep you too long. Um, I want to focus on something that we mentioned a little bit earlier related to the draft conversation. That was the high school, the prep arms and the prep players and the subsequent rounds outside of the first. And it directly relates to what the White Sox did last year in drafting Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson. Now, it was a matter of those two arms. Typically, they're paired together when we're talking White Sox and these two high school arms. It, it seems like Dahlquist and Thompson are just always in the same breath. And it's it's really fascinating to me that you had Andrew Dahlquist over Matthew Thompson in your rankings. And 
quite frankly, I'm with you there. I when I saw Andrew Dahlquist, and of course I haven't seen him in person, but when just watching draft profiles and reading up on him and seeing video on Dahlquist, I love his frame. I love his delivery. However, Matthew Thompson has the stuff that you figure can translate to the big leagues in a hurry. What is the difference between the two, and why do you, why did you rank Dahlquist higher than Thompson at, at this point? I, I feel a lot better about Dahlquist's ability to get to his ceiling, even though Thompson has a higher ceiling. I absolutely agree with folks who, who would say, you know, this is when I had Dahlquist 9 and Thompson 10, right? If you want to come to me and say Thompson should be higher than Dahlquist, I'd say, okay. Like, I, I don't really argue that much about two players I've got ranked consecutively. And I know you're not arguing with me, but I'm just saying like that this is a fine distinction that I don't think is worth making. They're very close. Um, but I think Dahlquist already has really good command for his age, and you're just waiting on some projection. Not a ton of projection. He doesn't need to add eight miles an hour to his fastball, right? If he adds a grade of fastball over the next three, four years, then – it works out. Then you've got a big league starter, probably just big league, an average big league starter, but that's what he is. You're, you're not waiting for him to throw strikes. You're not waiting for him to learn command. Whereas Thompson, Thompson had kind of a lousy spring last year. He, he, I think he largely got paid and went in the second round because of what he'd done before last year. I actually saw him absolutely awful in uh, February of last year, where I would argue he basically quit in the middle of the outing and he was losing velocity. He was down to about 84, 86 in his last inning of work. Um, I thought he was hurt. He wasn't, he came back, he pitched, he was showing mid nineties again by the end of his spring, but that was certainly concerning to me. And maybe he's just got some growing up to do. Maybe he's still working on durability and stamina and just didn't feel it that day. I mean, there's lots of possible explanations. It just speaks to me. It doesn't make him a worse prospect. It makes him high variance. Whereas with Dahlquist, I feel like there's much lower variance. And even if he's not, doesn't have the crazy athletic potential of somebody like a Thompson, I feel pretty good about Dahlquist's chances to get to his ceiling, even, even recognizing that most high school pitchers are pretty high risk. Keith, when you were making your White Sox prospect list, you listed um, some guys at the bottom of your list that are you know, significantly younger than some of the guys at the top. So I guess my question would be out of, you know, guys like Bryce Bush, James Beard, who I recall you liking um, in the pre-draft, Brian Ramos, DJ Gladney, who's most likely of, of those type of guys to possibly vault into the top 10 of your list next year, like in of your White Sox list? Sure. I mean, James Beard, I just love because he's an 80 runner and because it's one of the yeah. best names in all of baseball, obviously, if you, if yeah, you like yeah, to cook so, or you like to yeah. eat out. Right. That's uh, it, it is the ideal name and it's going to lead to a million great headlines. I, I just. It, Bryce Bush probably wasn't ready for low A. I think he's better than that. I think he's got great bat speed. I think he's got power. Uh, he was a Michigan high school kid who had not faced a lot of good pitching in his life. The worst thing that could happen. I'm sure you guys remember 2018, right? He was the talk of the summer. Who is this kid we got in the? They got took him in the 30. Third, third round, third, yeah, right. But they paid it. They paid him like fifth round money or something. So, but still, like he went out and just destroyed short season ball. Oh my god, what do it? Maybe they found something here. An under scouted guy from a cold weather state. It absolutely happens. Unfortunately, it may have convinced the White Sox, not to mention probably a lot of other people, that he was ready to go right out to low A, and he wasn't. I hate. I even wrote. I I, I just pulled up what I wrote. I said I wouldn't write him off by any means. He's too talented to just forget about. Yeah, if he goes out this year and punches out 30% of the time again, okay, fine. It didn't work. Um, I would actually like to see him that like send him back to low A. Let him go there, make some more contact, get some confidence back. If he finishes the year in Winston-Salem, we're still well on track. He 
he's got a lot of ability. And of all the guys at the very end of my list, um, I think he's got the best chance because he's got the bat speed and he's got the power. And he's, I feel like it's probably just inexperience as much as anything else. Whereas somebody like Beard, who I think is really interesting because that's otherworldly speed, like he can't hit right now. He's a Mississippi high school kid who's probably, he is just as behind as Bush was, maybe more so. Gladney went and punched out a ton in the AZL. He is a prospect. There's a lot of work to do to cut down on that, to turn those guys into prospects who might jump up the system. We got to see incremental improvement from them this year, and maybe they're the names we're talking about for this a year from now. Keith, I want to talk to you about Louis Alexander Basabe, and I actually have that same article that you mentioned pulled up myself. And, you know, I, I'm i high on him personally. I, I just love the fact that, of course, he's a switch hitter and he's got plus speed and he can play any outfield position for you. And if you consider him his floor a fifth outfielder or whatever, your 26th man, I think that's pretty darn good if considering that's your floor. But he's been hampered with injury, and he hasn't been playing consistently. Do you think that hinders on where the White Sox believe that he's valued at this point of his career? Or do you see him coming back this year and, and having a, a comeback, bounce-back season that we expect him to have? I think he I think he has a bounce-back season. Uh, you know, he broke his ham eight last spring, and I don't think he was ever the same hitter the rest of the year. So, it, you know, it'd be a little weird to call him a sleeper because obviously we, we've heard about him forever, right? He's he's pretty well known. He was in the he was in the Chris Sale trade, right? I'm not remembering that wrong. Yes. Uh, yeah, he was, and and of course I always like him because I still think it's funny that the Diamondbacks traded for his brother by mistake. They asked for the wrong one, and then the Red Sox got the White Sox ended up trading for the correct Luis Basabe. Um, <laughs> I think he's going to have. A, I really think he's going to have a big year. Now I don't know that that makes him a star. Maybe it just makes him a possible regular. Or like I actually could see him being a 400 at bat outfielder who plays all three spots because the White Sox have a really good center fielder that we've already talked about. So maybe there's not actually a place for Basabe to play every day. He just plays all over. But I think he's a good athlete. He's got an idea at the plate, enough of an idea at the plate. And once he gets his strength back a year plus off the hamate injury, I think you'll start to see the type of hitter, type of hitter he is and frankly the type of hitter he was before last season. So to wrap up with you, Keith, and thanks a lot for doing this for us. Um, I just wanted to touch on two guys on the big league team. So you were always very high on Lucas Giolito, even through his struggles. So I guess what made you remain so optimistic with him? And then also Nomar Mazzara is another guy that ranked highly for you. It was obviously a very long time ago. Um, how much of his once highly thought of ceiling is even still salvageable at this point? Um, with Giolito... Always believed in the athlete, uh, the delivery, and the makeup. Now, in that case, I happen to know Lucas. I've met him um, and knew the type of person he was and how intelligent he is and that in his ability to, to be able to execute adjustments. And frankly, him going to the White Sox was probably ideal because they have such a great track record of getting more out of pitchers. They've been doing – I just mentioned Chris Sale as a guy I think – they made little tweaks to his hand position, got his slot up just just enough to get him some depth on that slider, and it went from, I mean, it became a, a knockout pitch. It was like a 35 in college, and it became a 70 within a year of him getting drafted. That speaks to their player development process. And so for Giolito to go there, it's why I still think they'll get more out of Dane Dunning when we get him back on a field too. Um, and I think he can become a starter. Uh, and then again, knowing knowing Giolito's makeup and his intelligence, I believe that he would he would get there. I just thought it was going to take some patience. Um, 
in Mazar's case, I, you know, I sort of throw up my hands. I still can't get over like his career path is just not what I expected at all. I really thought he'd be a better hitter. That he'd be a better hitter for, uh, um, in terms of getting on base than he has been. And I, I always thought there'd be more, I saw him first time I saw him, he's 17. I thought he was absolutely, uh, uh, going to come into at least above average power. So was it just a change of scenery thing? The Rangers people never had a bad word to say about him. They said it just never, never worked. Um, stuff they tried to do with him. They they would think he was making the adjustment and then games games would start and it wasn't really showing up. Um, it's not a criticism. They just said we we just couldn't figure out how to how to get him there. Maybe it's a change of scenery thing and he will get there. I would love to see it. I just don't have any specific reason to tell you why it might. Outstanding stuff, Keith. Thanks so much for everything. Always locked into the Chicago White Sox and you can follow Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. Subscribe to The Athletic to read everything that Keith puts out. Uh, last one, and then we'll let you go. What are you going to do now, considering that <laughs> baseball's on the back burner and, you know, they've just got this grace period where we're just trying to figure things out ourselves during this this pandemic? Um, I am going to uh, play a lot of board games. I am going to, including pandemic, actually. <laughs> I am going to read a lot of books. Um, I do have some writing things on baseball and board games sort of in the can. I do still have a book coming out in about six weeks. It'll be interesting, uh, probably about five weeks, um, called The Inside Game. I have some in-store events planned for that first week. We'll see if that actually happens. Maybe it will. I hope so. Um, and I've got some personal things going on, all good, that will keep me busy. I mean, even today, I didn't really have a spare moment to myself the entire day. Um, so I have a feeling I'll, I'll be okay for a couple of weeks now if we're still doing nothing in a month like in, in terms of like not even leaving the house like i'm not planning to leave the house the rest of the week a month from now i might be going a little stir crazy i mean i do only have about 200 board games in the house i, I could probably get through those pretty quickly for james fox and keith law my name is mike rankin thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the future socks podcast you can subscribe to us anywhere where you get podcasts itunes spotify and the like keith awesome stuff thanks so much for your time Yep, my pleasure. Thanks, Keith.